So I'm a practicing scientist. I don't write popular books about science. Just publish mainly mainly uh, uh, articles uh, uh, articles in, in, in chemistry. I'll just tell you so that you know who I am. This is my family. And um, uh, so this is, you can tell the one who's not genetically connected. That's my son-in-law. <clears throat> and that's my daughter, Umbreen. They live in Israel. Umbreen is a... Uh, is a uh, uh, mediator between Palestinians and Israelis. And uh, she's been doing that for more than 10 years. And I told her she'll never be out of work. She, um, the next one is Sabrina. She's an attorney, a litigator in Houston, uh, uh, corporate litigation. Next one is, is Josiah, and he is a physician. And he's actually doing research here at A&M. Right, right now he's out <coughs> interviewing for residency positions. But... Uh, he's, he's doing some research right now, even even here at A&M. And then the youngest one is Ben. He, he's in, in private equity with Madison Dearborn in Chicago. And my wife, we've been married, uh, I've been married to Shireen for 37 years. And these are our two grandchildren. These are Umbreen's daughters. And so that's my family. So you know I'm just a regular guy. So in spite of what <coughs> Winky Prattney said, I'm just a regular guy. And when I was in graduate school, so I met Winky a year ago when he came to my office. Eli brought him to my office. And I didn't make the connection at the time. Because when I saw a video of Whitney Prattney, I was in my first year of graduate school. So I was 21 years old when I saw a a, a video of him. So that, that that was almost 40 years ago. So I knew him as a young guy. You know, he's this young guy in this video. <clears throat> and here was this older man came to my office. I never made the connection. Something that he said on that video has always stuck with me to this day. And it was, if you lower moral standards in the sexual realm before marriage, they will be easier to lower within marriage. And that always stuck with me. So uh, <clears throat> I remember that from almost 40 years ago. I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about the work that we do, and then I'm going to get into some other topics. So we work in an area called laser-induced graphene, and uh, uh, this is where we can take any surface now, treat it with a laser, and turn it into graphene. Graphene is the single atomic sheets of graphite, and it's this this new space-age material. It's got all these superlatives. But this is not where we drop graphene on a piece of bread. This is where we convert the carbohydrate strands into graphene. And it's just done with a, with a laser scriber, the same thing you, you have in every, any machine shop. This is going to spawn at least five different companies are going to come out of this. Two initially, starting in 2020. Um, so this is graphene nanoribbons. And we make these by longitudinally unzipping carbon nanotubes. And this makes thin sheets of graphene. And I'm going to show you in the next slide what we can do with these. This is uh, some computer memory that we built. This is now a public company. It's two-terminal memory. It's called RERAM, type of memory, and it's also transparent. We work in this area of traumatic brain injury and stroke and also dementia, where we can take a brain that would normally have a traumatic brain injury looking like this, and we make it look like that. And uh, uh, traumatic brain injury actually is the number one disabler of younger adults because they like to, you know, use skateboards and bicycles and things like that. And they don't watch where they're going when they go down the steps and they fall. And so that's the biggest disabler of young adults. So we're working on that. Um, this is a new process called flash graphene. This is huge. This is uh, uh, the, a paper will come out probably within a month from now. And the company is just launched called Universal Matter. We can take any material in bulk, 
that's carbon, any material that's carbon, and turn it into graphene in 10 milliseconds in bulk. No solvents. It's going to change everything. Right, right now, graphene sells $67,000 to $200,000 per ton. We can start with coal that's $100 a ton and turn it into graphene. I mean, think of those economics. Take plastic waste and turn it into adsorbents for adsorbing of, of gases. Uh, this is graphene quantum dots. We start from coal, again, $100 a ton. One step, when we started this work, graphene quantum dots were $1 million per kilogram. $100 a ton, $1 million per kilogram. One step, 25% yield. Now, that, now the, gra- the, the price of quantum dots has come way down as a result. And so this, this is a product, it's, again, it's a public company. It's, it's in uh, plastics and high-end shoes and purses for authentication to know that it's, it's the real thing and not some knockoff. Um, and then we work in this area. We've learned how to 3D print graphene. Then we work in this area called nanocars. These are single-molecule cars, and you can park 50,000 of these across the diameter, the diameter of a human hair. So they're really small, two nanometers by three nanometers. And when you put motors in them, you shine a light and the motor spins. But that's not the rate that it spins. The motor actually spins at three million rotations per second. It's called a Faringa motor. And and, um, then we take these same motors and we modify them. We put a peptide on them and we could get them to tack down a particular cell of choice. So they'll recognize the cell surface of a particular cell through that peptide recognition. Then we turn them on and they drill a hole in the cell. And they kill the cell. Well, why would you want to kill cells? What if you had cancer cells? You want to kill those cells, right? This is a bacterium. This is actually a picture that was taken right here at Texas A&M. And this is in collaboration with Jeff Cirillo, uh, who's in the infectious diseases department. And this is taking super bacteria, which when you are my age, or not even my age, or when you, even before you're my age, it's slated that super bacteria are going to be killing you're going to be killing 10 million people per year by the year 2050. So uh, we've got to get a handle on these things. And so this drills right into them and blows their guts out. So this is what we do. So th- this is a rat. This rat has had its spinal cord cut completely in two at C5 at the base of the neck. We put one drop of a polyethylene glycol solution of a 1% solution of these graphene nanoribbons that's not my phone I don't have a phone the winky's calling <clears throat> but this, this is um, this is uh, 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 two weeks after we put one drop of graphene nanoribbons in that spinal cord that's been completely cut in two it's walking again scored an 18 out of 21 on a mobility scale and, uh, um, and so then you'll see this rat after three weeks and so you see with this so it scores a 19 out of 21 on mobility scale. And, and uh, so it's for the reconnection of spinal cords. This is now a, a company that's, that started and, and working on, on, uh, uh, on spinal cord, peripheral nerve, and optic nerve. Uh, so if we can reconnect optic nerves, we could do whole eye transplants. So we want to make the lame walk, the blind see, and the deaf hear, and we want to have the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's what we want to do. <clears throat> All right. So that just gives you an idea that we do real chemistry. We do real science. So is there a prescription for thriving? Is there a way to thrive in life? Now, before I get started, I will say that some people say, oh, well, you're, you're, you know, you're preaching this feel-good stuff. Life is full of lots of problems. For sure, life is full of lots of problems, but you don't have to be overcome by the problems in life. 
Whoever wants to walk godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, but you don't have to walk defeated. Well, how can you, how can you have a prescription for thriving? Well, the scriptures tell us in Psalm 1, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Now I want you to look at this. This word of God is extremely specific. Look what it says. The man is going to be blessed if you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Okay, so that's all the negative stuff you shouldn't do. What should you do? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The scripture puts it two ways, meditating day and night, and uh, doing it every day. You meditate on the word of God every day, and you will be blessed. Every day, and you will be blessed. So for over 40 years... I've meditated on the scriptures every day. You say, how do you do that? Well, I start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and I start reading. And when I get through to, and I pick up where I left off the day before, and when I, and when I get to Revelation chapter 22, and I finish that, I start again. It's a book. And as I'm reading, and I say, as I start to read that day, I say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me from the scriptures. Speak to me. That's meditation, and I start to read, and then all of a sudden you start seeing your eyes get drawn to a certain verse. Say, Lord, what are you saying? Speak to me. And the Lord begins to do this. This is what meditation is. It's reading slowly, pensively. It's not rushing through this. I don't read a chapter a day, or, 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 and I don't try to get through the, the Bible in a year. If God wanted me to get done in a year, he'd have said, read the Bible in a year. doesn't say that. I can spend a week in a paragraph if I feel the Lord's just speaking to me. And then when I'm done, I move on. It's very specific. You do this every day. Meditate day and night in the law of the Lord. What's going to happen? You're going to be like a tree firmly planted. Everybody else around you is going to be drying up. You'll be like a tree firmly planted. I am a living testimony that the word of God is true. Every word in the Bible is true. It is absolutely true. I have lived it. Jesus said I said, how do, how, do we, how do we know what you're saying is true? Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. If anyone is willing to do his will, John 7, 17. <clears throat> if you're willing to do the will of God, you will know this book to be true. You will know it. Because you will see it over and over again in your life. I've been, I went to campus when I was 18 years old and I've never left. Right? So I have seen a lot of people. I'm not a prophet. I just have data points. Lots of them. And I can see a person and the way they're living their life. And I can tell you what their life, life is going to be like in 10 and 20 years. I know the outcome of the behavior and the things that they're doing. I know what their marriage is going to be like. I know what their life is going to be like. I know what their relationship with children are going to be like. Just because I have a lot of data points. Because this book is true and it tells us exactly what happens for different actions. And it's fulfilled. 
Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. There it is again. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it, for then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have success. You take this book, and you make it your daily meditation. Maybe there's a blessing for meditating on the Word of God three days a week. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. There's no such promise in the Bible. The only promise that's there is for every day. Every day. You take this Word of God and you make it your meditation every day. And then you will fall into this amazing blessing. You will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Now, prosperity and success can even come when we're sick, can even come when we get hit with diseases, because you're not overcome anymore by these things. You don't have to live there like the rest of the world lives. The book has a promise for us, and that's meditation every day. Again, Psalm 119, verse 97 through 99. I probably spent more time meditating on this portion than any other portion, because it's so amazing. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. There it is again. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And it doesn't say, than all your Bible teachers. It says teachers, period. Than all your teachers. If you will make this Word of God your meditation you'll have more insight than all your teachers. That's the promise. But it's connected to something very specific. Meditation all the day. You make the Word of God your meditation and you will fall into this blessing. Every day. Every day. Now, I have watched people's lives... I think it is very hard to make the Word of God your daily meditation if you do it at night, the end of the day. It's just hard. Falling asleep, it's just so many things going on. You wake up and you spend time. You say, well, well, why is that important? It's just because Jesus used to do that. He would wake up in in Mark chapter 1. He would wake up while it was still dark and he would go off to a lonely place and he would pray. While it was still dark, he would get up And you go off to a lonely place. You make this Word of God your meditation. That takes discipline to go to bed on time so that you can wake up early enough to spend time with God. If you want this blessing, it comes by daily meditation. So let me give you some some examples of of, of the excitement of a scientist with faith. That if you don't have faith, you can't have this kind of excitement. I mean, it just, it just, just won't happen. So, September 3rd, 1993, I was invited to Purdue University. I was staying right there in the Purdue Memorial Union and Hotel. They have a hotel and restaurant management program there, and the students run this this really nice hotel. And I was staying right there, and um, uh, I had gotten my Ph.D. at Purdue in in a a few years earlier, in in, uh, 1986. And then I went off and did a postdoc for a few years, and then I started as an assistant professor and. And I, and I had gotten tenure, and I got promoted, and, and I got invited back to Purdue to give a talk. And before I give a lecture, I will always pray. Pray before I give this lecture. I will always pray. The Holy Spirit just comes and, and ministers. Even before a chemistry lecture, I pray. 
Because when unbelievers get hit by the power of the Holy Spirit in the chemistry lecture, they don't know what hit them. They're just like, what just happened? What happened? And, and um, so I was praying that morning and in, my, in the hotel room, and I read this verse in Matthew 21, 21. It says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith. I prayed that my seminar in the department, in the chemistry department today, would be the best seminar ever given in that department. That's what I prayed. Then I got to thinking, well, Lord, you know, the department's over 100 years old. How am I going to know it was the best seminar ever given? You know, who, how, how, do you, how do you know it? So I said, Lord, if it was the best seminar given, I pray that my mentor, the one from whom I got my PhD, because he was going to be in the audience, I pray that he would say that it was super, that it was a super seminar. Now, the reason that's important is because I got my PhD with this gentleman, H. Nagishi. He won the Nobel Prize in 2010 in chemistry, but in 1993, he was just a regular guy. And, and um, anytime I bring him a result when I was a graduate student, he'd say, pretty good for your level. And I never got over the man's waist. And, and I didn't want any of that to happen. I said, Lord, I pray that he would say that it was super, which was not a, nor- a word that he normally used. Well, when I got done with that seminar, that man was sitting right on the front, right on the end, and he, 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 and, uh, uh, he stood up. As soon as I got done, he goes, Supa! Supa! <laughs> you know, God answered exactly my prayer. Exactly my prayer. And then sitting right behind him on the end also was, a, was, a, uh, was another chemist, H.C. Brown. He had won the Nobel Prize in 1979 for the hydroboration reaction. If you've taken undergraduate organic chemistry, you might remember the hydroboration reaction. And, and uh, that was developed by H.C. Brown. And, and uh, he was already an important guy because he already had the Nobel. And, and um, I walked up, and he was in his 80s at the time. And I sh- shook his hand, and he was sitting down, and I shook his hand. I, I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today. He said, I got something to tell you. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. The guy is 80 years old. And, uh, uh, and I said, that's very kind of you to say that. And he said, in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, I'm not saying it to be kind. I really mean it. God fulfills his word. I'm telling you, you take the word of God. You make it your daily meditation. You get an, an excitement in life that other people just don't have. Just can't have it. Again, it doesn't happen three days a week. It's every day. Every day in the Word of God. Before you leave today, you will make a commitment to read the Word of God every day of your life before you leave today. Application of the Scriptures in my career. I mean, here's another one. So, one day I was upset with a colleague. We were, we were, we were both assistant professors, and I had been hired a year before him. We were both on our own tenure track. We weren't competing for the same position. And... and you know, he, he, was, uh, he was a great chemist. I mean, there, there, there's no doubt. I mean, he was really good. And one day he came into my office and uh, uh, he put his arm up on the, on the uh, uh, filing cabinet and uh, um, he looked down at me and he said, I'll get tenure before you ever do. Now, you might not appreciate what that really means, but that's like walking up to somebody and saying, 
you know, I'm better looking than you. Even if it were true, it's an ugly thing to say. So you just don't say stuff like that. And, and uh, so I was really, really, you know, taken aback by that. But anyway, what happened was <clears throat> we both had these little offices with concrete floors that were converted laboratories, and we both had little metal student desks when we were assistant professors and, <clears throat> and concrete cinder block walls. And my career just took off. God blessed my career so much that in a few years I had an outer office with a secretary and an inner office all carpeted, a big wooden desk. And, and he was still across the hall in a little office with a student desk, metal and concrete walls. <clears throat> and one day a student came to my office and she said, you know, I really like you, but, but this, this professor across the hall, he's always saying bad stuff about you. And I got really upset because there, there was no Snapchat in those days. I mean, but still news could travel rather quickly. You tell an undergraduate something like that, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just history. It's just gone out. And... And so I went over to his door, and I was going to really give it to him. And I knocked on his door, and he wasn't in. And as I stood there, I remembered a verse that I had been memorizing with my children. We were memorizing all of Luke chapter 6, but in particular, verse 27 and 28 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Look at very specific what it says. <clears throat> you are to love your enemies. You're to love him. I mean, it's amazing how God commands us to love. <clears throat> he commands us to love. You know, you, you shall love the Lord your God. This is an amazing commandment. How do you make somebody love? You put a gun to their head. You've got to love me. Love me now. I mean, how do you make somebody love? Well, God's in control of all of this. And he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Does somebody hate you? You are obliged now. If they hate you, it is now your obligation to do something good for them. I mean, I had a young lady come to me. She says, my boss hates me. I said, okay, perfect opportunity. She hates you. <clears throat> I said, what does she do? Does she, I said, does she like coffee? Oh, yeah, she always comes in with Starbucks in the morning. So, okay, you find out what kind of Starbucks coffee she drinks. And then you bring her a cup of that. You go out and you buy it and you bring it to her and you give it to her. She said, I got to do... Yeah, you, you have to do something good. <clears throat> it says, <clears throat> for those who hate you, you are obliged to do that. The Word of God is very specific. She did it. She said, it changed everything. She invited me out to lunch. Now we're friends. <clears throat> you obey the Word of God. There are blessings. You are to bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. I was at a chapel on the campus, Rutledge Chapel, and I would go, I was just a young professor, and I would go right up there, and I'd get on my knees, and I'd pray for him. Because I, I pray noonday, most days in my career, I pray around noonday, I'll go to the chapel and pray, or shut the door in my office, and just fall on my knees and pray. And I've been doing this since the time I was an undergraduate. So I've been doing it a long time. But, and this chapel was great because there was never anybody in there. It was only used for weddings and funerals. Other than that, the thing was empty. And, and I'd go there and, and I'd pray for him. And I'd pray for this guy every day. Well, this guy went from having no grants to having multiple grants. His career just took off. 
And in a couple of years, he was doing so well, he got an offer from another university. He took the offer and he left, and I was delighted. I mean, God, God just moved that problem right out of my life. Because he changed my heart. Once my heart was dealt with, then he could move the, the guy out. <clears throat> you know, he was just getting at my heart because he's so concerned about me as his child that he's got to get at my heart. But this is what happens when you meditate on the Word of God. It raises your faith. When you meditate on the Word of God, it helps you to deal with life's problems. <clears throat> I, I learned to walk in honesty and proper speech, you know, because the Word of God admonishes me to change my words and my actions. So, for example, it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you shall find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. You're going to find favor in the sight of God and man if you do this. Don't let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. And I, I, I used to be strung tighter than a banjo string. I was so you know, ready to tackle any project. And because of that, you know, I, could, I, I, I could be some dismissive and, and hard on people and God would continually remind me, kindness, kindness. And, and I remember going into meetings and thinking, you, you know, I just got to deal with these. And God would remind me, kindness, show kindness. I said, Lord, bind it around my neck. Let me show kindness. And don't let truth leave me. And so the words that I use, I would show kindness. And, and so I'll give you examples of that. The custodian who cleans my office, her name is Maria. She cleans the entire floor. So... I know her name. Her name is Maria. I know her son's names. And I've told her, and so I know you can get at anybody if you ask them about their children and say, can I pray for your children? So when I first met Maria, I said, Maria, do you have children? She says, yes, I have two sons. I said, can I pray for them? Anything that you need prayer for them? Boom. It'll open a person up. I did prison ministry for 10 years in a maximum security prison. When I could never get at a guy, I would say to him, do you have children that I can pray for? He would just stop. Everybody wants the best for their children. And, uh, uh, and then, then she told me some struggles they were going through. I said, bring them in. I want to meet them. And you know, I led them to the Lord and, and uh, came to my house, come to Bible studies, and Maria will do anything for me. If I have a light out, I just say, Maria, lights. I don't have to call electrical. And she, I'll take care of it. She calls electrical. And it, my colleagues say, how come everybody's always fixing your office? How do you do that? Just be nice to people. The Bible says you show kindness. You show kindness. I see, I saw a plumber. He was under, under working on a sink. I said, hey, how you doing down there? <clears throat> he says, yeah, I'm just working down here. He said to me, he says, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I said, hey, that's a good saying. I like that. I like that. We became buddies. You know, and I brought up some YouTube videos for him to look at on his phone. And, and uh, I don't have to call the plumbing department. I just call him. You know, and I don't even get a work order for it. He just goes under there and fixes stuff. You, you make friends by being kind. I'll tell you, if, if, as a student, if you go up to a maintenance worker and befriend them, they'll be shocked. But they look at you like you're amazing that you're in college. Really, many of them do. If you go and befriend them, they change your career. I learn all this from the Bible. The Bible is just full of all this stuff that teaches me. I had to watch my words, particularly when I would speak with, with women. One day, 
<clears throat> early on, when I was working on one of my earliest patents, I was talking to a, a, a female patent attorney in New York City. We'd never met, never seen each other. There was no internet in those days, so I didn't even know what she looks like. I couldn't bring up pictures of people. And, and uh, she told me she was going to work on this one phase of this thing. She says, I'm good at doing that. I said, I, I, I bet you're good at everything you do. Uh-oh. And then there was silence on the phone. And then I realized, you know, that, that was, that was uh, taken the wrong way. And I have to be careful. I have to be careful what I say, particularly to women, that could be read the wrong way. My office store always stays open when a female comes in my office. And, and I teach organic chemistry, so there's a lot of crying people come in my office. And, and, uh, but when there's a female comes in, the door stays open. My secretary knows if a female comes in and shuts the door behind her, she's to go and open that door, and I usually meet her at the door because I'm opening the door. I, want to, I don't want there to be even the appearance of evil. The Bible says be free even of the appearance of evil. I want to protect my marriage. I want to protect my reputation. Where do I learn about this? I learn about this from these scriptures because it says be free of the appearance of evil. The things that I do. So, for example, software. When I, when I got my first computer for, for, for my office, it was, it was in 1988. I got an amazing computer. It was a Mac SE. It had one megabyte of RAM. I mean, what are you going to do with megabyte? Megabyte so much. And, and, uh, uh, and, I, and I bought Microsoft Word and I bought ChemDraw. ChemDraw had just come out so you could draw structures. And so with Microsoft Word, you, you just do a bunch of spaces and then you go into ChemDraw, you draw these structures and then you print them out. Then you cut them out and you paste them into that opening that you made in Microsoft Word. And so cut and paste had a real meaning at that time. And... and uh, uh, then the next year, they came out with the Mac SE 30. It had 30 megabytes of RAM, so you could open ChemDraw and Word at the same time. And, and uh, um, so I bought a whole other set of software for that. And the next year, they came out with it because it, at that time, computers would get, they'd, they'd really get 30 times better every year at that time. And, and, uh, um, and then it, you had to replace them like every two years, they became obsolete. But anyway, so the next year I bought another computer and I bought another set of software. And my colleague said, why are you buying so much software? I said, because I called Microsoft and I called ChemDraw. And they both said, one computer, one set of software. Computers didn't talk to each other in those days. Nobody would have known. They didn't know that you loaded it on another computer. But I was just going by the rules. He says, why are you doing that? They'll never know. I said, but they said that. So I want to... Honor it. And wouldn't you know it, program managers would call me at the end of a fiscal year in Washington. And they'd, these are the people at you know, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense that fund research. They said, Jim, we've got extra money. Can you use it? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I use it in a heartbeat. How fast do you want it spent? <laughs> and and uh, um, they never called the other guy. They called me. When you walk in honesty, don't let kindness and truth leave you. When you walk in truth, God sees this. I tell my accountant, I say, if there's any, any questions, just pay it to the government. I don't want to keep anything that belongs to them. I don't want to. I don't want to have any software, any music on my computers that I don't own. Because God sees it. Because God sees it. I learned this from the Word of God. 
And so when everybody else is drying up on research funds, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm rolling in money all the time, but I've always had enough. I've always had enough. God's blessed. You know, a lot of people, you know, the scriptures say you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same thing. So we really have to be careful about condemning others. We have to look at our own lives and just make sure that we're walking in honesty and truth. All right. Hard work coupled with a balanced family life. So in 2007, I was asked to write an article for the Journal of Organic Chemistry summarizing my career. This was more than 10 years ago. They wanted me to summarize my career. So I must be really old now. But um, one, one, one guy just told me tonight, and I felt so good. He said, you really connect with this generation. I'm like, I do? <laughs> I don't even understand this generation. Um, so I submitted 37. This is what I wrote in that article. I submitted 37 proposals in my first 36 months as a faculty member. <clears throat> and most of those were single principal investigator since collaborative proposals were less common in those days. So remember, in those days, when you write a proposal, you had to you write, write this proposal, and then you make like 14 copies of it. You remember that. And you had to go through every page to make sure that the machine didn't skip a page. And that, I mean, manually through every page and fill out all the forms like, you know, do you maintain a drug-free workplace? I'm like, who's ever going to say, no, I don't? You know, you'd have to be on drugs to say something like that. And you fill out all these forms, and then you, you put them in a box, and you mail them to the National Science Foundation. Mail them, yeah, physically. Mail them, no electronic anything. And, and uh, so it was a lot of work. So I know what hard work is. It's a lot of work to build a career. But my family was there with me. So... On days of receiving declination of funding letters from the NIH, sadness certainly followed. I would always call my wife, Shireen, because she was repeatedly there to reassure me of my self-worth, and my children were still there to call me daddy. Hence, I endeavored to dwell only momentarily on the harsh, sometimes even unnecessarily personal comments of the reviewers. My family was there. Do not trash your family as you build your career. I urge you, treasure them. They will be such a strength to you. And uh, I remember a colleague coming in and, and uh, he said, Tour, I never see you here at night. It was just a young assistant professor. Well, you know, I'd leave my house at 6 in the morning and I'd work it until 6 in the evening. And then I went home and had dinner with my family. And I put my kids to bed. And uh, I didn't come back at night. And uh, I know a lot of assistant professors did, but I figured I'd been gone 12 hours a day that day already. And, um, uh, and I'm so happy because my family was there. And, and I got beat up by the world. You know, you have write these proposals and reviewers say nasty things because they hide behind their anonymity, sort of like, sort of like uh, uh, Twitter today, you know. And... and uh, but my wife was there. She said, I know you're going to succeed. I know you can do it. I know you can do it. And I'd be like, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. My wife was behind me all the time. She was there behind me. And my kids didn't know. They would just jump on me. And then I'd feel okay again. Creativity. In my business, what distinguishes you more than anything else is your creativity. This game is not up to the really smart ones. Mm -mm. If it were up to the smart ones, 
I wouldn't be where I am. It's up to the creative ones. When you come up with something and you write a paper and people look at that paper and they're like, whoa, I wish I'd have thought of that. That's creativity. Well, where does creativity come from? There was a guy in the Bible, his name was Bezalel. Talks about him in the book of Exodus, chapter 31, and then some other chapters as well. Bezalel. Bezalel was the man whom Moses commissioned to build the tabernacle. Look what it says of Bezalel. Exodus 31, verse 2 and 3. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all craftsmanship. This is the first filling with the Spirit of God noted in the Bible. No one before Bezalel. And the guy was a construction man. I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all craftsmanship. And then you read on what it says about Bezalel. Bezalel could work in gold, in silver, and in bronze. Not just one metal, he knew how to work in them all. And he could work in stone cutting and in stone setting. He could work in fabric, in wood, and perfuming. The man was a renaissance man. He could do anything. Because he was filled with the Spirit of God. And God first filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, then understanding, and then in knowledge. Because if you have knowledge without wisdom and understanding, you do dastardly things with it. But he filled them with the Spirit of God. Look at what the Word of God does. And so this is why in the mornings, almost every morning, it's on my prayer list right there, almost every morning I pray, Lord, make me like Bezalel. Make me like Bezalel. And make my students working in the lab like Bezalel. So they come up with all these great things and then they put my name on the paper with them. That's how it works in my business. Then everybody then remembers my name and not theirs. And then I I keep telling them, it wasn't me, it was my students. My students did this. And then they think I'm all the more magnanimous. (laughs) You know, it's a crazy sort of feel. But you, you pray, Lord, make me like Bezalel. I think the vast majority of professions, creativity is what rules the day. Except in medicine. You can't walk in and say to somebody, I'm going to try something new on you today. Something that's never been done before. You know, you've you got to have some sort of clinical practice you don't do that with. In research, you can do that. But, but um, uh, creativity. God gives this. The Bible says, the darkness and the light are the same to Him. He sees in the darkness. Everybody else is obscured. God sees it. And He's saying, like, Jim, come here. Look here. Whoa! And we get all these discoveries. And God just drops it in my lap. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. It runs into my lap. You meditate on the Word of God daily. This will fall to you. This will come upon you. Do it. Do it. Start from today. Do it. Attaining peace. Everybody wants peace in their lives. I don't know anybody who doesn't want peace. I've never known anybody to say, you know, I just woke up this morning and say, I hope it's a terrible day. I hope 
Everything goes wrong. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants peace. Well, how do you get peace? Well, the Bible tells us. This book is full of wisdom. It tells us. This is the word of God. Every word in it is true. You follow this and your life is so much better. Philippians 4.9 The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. That's Paul speaking. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You practice these things. Peace comes through practice. Peace comes through practice. You practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The things that are written here, the things that He has here for us, you practice it. You practice it. That means you you get up in the morning and you, and you, you spend time in the Word of God. I go work out early in the mornings and I see the women's swim, women's swim team. How many of you are on the swim team here? Anybody here? Anybody here on the swim team? I can't see any hands. They're probably swimming or practicing it. I mean, I see the women's swim team and they, at six in the morning they're jumping in that, and it, it's freezing out there. You know, I'm inside and working out and they're outside. Go to jump in the pool and you, you, you got to practice these things. And that's a hard sport. I mean, you, you, you work like crazy to shave off like a hundredth of a second. It's amazing. But anyway, you practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You practice these things. You will have peace. Let me, let me pull all this together just by telling you my story about how I came to faith. I was born into a Jewish home in New York City. Is a secular Jewish home, meaning that we didn't we didn't practice Judaism very much. We went to the synagogue probably a couple times a year. A lot like so-called Christians that grow up just in a Christian home, they might go at Christmas at Easter. It was the same like that. I mean, that's the kind of home we never talked about God in my home. And uh, so I went to college at the age of eighteen. I had just turned eighteen. I think I left for college like on my eighteenth birthday. And and um, I was my first load of laundry that August. I was down in the laundry room doing laundry, and I was in in the. Uh, there was another guy in there, and he was on the Syracuse University football team, and he was a quarterback. And I and I said to him, and we got to talk, and I said, "You're going to play professional football when you graduate?" He said, "Oh no, I'm not good enough for that." I said, "What are you going to do?" He said, "Oh, probably lay ministry." I said, "Lay ministry? What's that?" I don't know what lay ministry was. I'm a Jewish kid. I don't know what that is. He says, oh, something maybe like a missionary. I said, missionary? Why would you want to be a missionary? We got TV. You just beam it in. And uh, so he said he'd like to give me an illustration of the gospel. What he told me in 1977, I'm going to tell you tonight. The exact same story he told me. So he drew this picture. There were no computers. There were no iPads. There was nothing. There was just paper. And a pen, and he drew this, and he put people on one side and God on the other, sin separating us, and he had me read this verse from the Bible. First verse I ever remember ever opening the Bible and, and uh, uh, really reading it to try to understand this thing like this. And he had me read this verse in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I haven't sinned. He looked at me, I said, I haven't sinned. Because... In the secular Jewish context, you have to do something to really hurt somebody 
to be a sinner. Not just little things. You know, as Christians, every thought, oh no, I've sinned again. The, the, the Jews don't deal with that. And uh, we go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, the rabbi says a few things, and we're good to go for another year. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that, that's not real. That's just, it's just for secular Jews, that's real. And it was for me. And I, I thought you really had to hurt somebody. And then he, he pulled out another verse, and he had me read this verse. And this was loaded, just loaded. Matthew 5.28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I was nailed. Boom. This was my life. And that's all I ever did. I was addicted to pornography from the age of 14. I started working in a gas station just outside New York City on the highway. And I told the guy I was 16. They didn't use to check paperwork in those days. And, and I would, had to clean the parking lots, and the, and the salesmen would throw away these magazines on Friday nights on their way home. And I became addicted to pornography at a young age, and I didn't think anybody knew. And now all of a sudden, this guy, Jesus Christ, from 2,000 years ago, said something that just really hit me. Because for the first time in my life, I realized I was a sinner. I realized I was a sinner. If you don't fall into this list, then there's other things you fall into. The Bible says that all liars shall go into the lake of fire. All liars. Even little, little lies put you in the lake of fire. So everybody has sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I knew at that moment that I was a sinner. Now he had my attention. Then he had me read this verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So every, every religion has this, this feeling that if my good works somehow outweigh my bad works, I'll be okay. Because there's always someone worse than me. <clears throat> Bible says, mm-mm, doesn't work that way here. It's not a result of works. There's no way you can get this. This is... This is a gift, and it's a gift that comes through faith. It's a strange kind of gift. You know, I'm going to give you something. Hold it out for you. You take it. That's how it works. Take it. This gift comes by faith. It's a gift that comes by faith. I receive it by faith. This gift comes by faith. It is a free gift. It's free. And it comes by faith. You can't work for it. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is a faith that is for sinners. If you are good, it's not for you. It's for sinners. The Bible says Christ died for the ungodly. If you're godly, you got to go somewhere else and get, get your salvation. This is for the ungodly, for those of us that realize we are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. So, you're walking down the sidewalk with a three-year-old holding your hand. I don't know, your, your child, your niece, your nephew, or something. You're walking along. All of a sudden, a big dog comes running at you, foaming at the mouth, growling, big, ugly dog, really ugly dog, running toward you, growling. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to take this three-year-old and go, take the kid, leave me alone. You're going to do that? Nobody does that. You're going to pick up this kid and shield the child and you know do whatever you can. You're even going to get bitten to protect this child. 
This is normal. What God does is He takes His Son and He gives Him on our behalf, on your behalf. This is the ultimate expression of love. That the one whom I love, my own Son, I give for you. God demonstrates His own love toward us. This is demonstrated love. That Jesus... Jesus' life is given for you. And that provides the way for us to get to God. This verse is powerful. How do you get saved? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you get saved? This is how. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. And that's what gets us to God. Then it was, so that was in November, that was in August of 1977. November 7th, 1977, I was in that room all alone. He had told me this story in August. If he really knew what he was doing, he could have closed the deal right there. But anyway, November 7th, 1977, I was in that room all alone. My roommate wasn't there. And I got on my knees and I said, Lord, and I don't even know why I got on my knees, because most Jews will stand when they pray. Uh, uh, and and you, you see the same pattern in the scriptures. Jesus, it says Jesus sat down and he taught. Rabbis, even to this day, will often sit and teach. Standing is, is for praying. And, and, uh, uh, and most Christians that I, that I knew would sit when they, when they prayed. I got on my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And come into my life. And then all of a sudden, this heaviness that I had been feeling because I realized that I was a sinner when I had read that verse about looking at a woman with lust for her. This just started to lift from me. And forgiveness started pouring in. And all of a sudden, somebody was standing in my room. And I opened my eyes because I was startled because somebody was in my room. And I couldn't see anybody, but he was standing right there. Jesus was standing there. And all of a sudden, I just burst into tears and love being poured out. I wasn't scared. There wasn't judgment. There was kindness being poured out by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, upon me. I didn't want to get up. I was just enjoying His presence. Kindness, kindness, kindness from the Son of God being poured out upon me. That day, November 7th, 1977, 42 years ago. Finally, I composed myself. I got up. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't know what to say. What's this Jewish kid from New York City going to say? And I was walking two weeks later, about two weeks later, I was walking on, my, on the floor, in, the, in, in that same floor, and the guy who had shared with me in the laundry room, this football player, he lived on that floor. And he looked at me. He says, Jim, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me on that day. And I asked him, I said, how, how can I keep this feeling? I feel like God's just with me now. I never had this feeling before. He said, I've known people that retain that feeling. And I've asked them, do you read your Bible every day? And they always said yes. And so I said, that I can do. And so for over 40 years, I read and meditated on the Word of God every day. But I take you back to this verse. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, every week, every week I see somebody. On average, every week I see somebody come to the Lord. 
usually I'm sitting with somebody, I'm discussing with them the gospel, just like I just described this to you. And I did prison ministry, but I stopped doing that 20 years ago. For the last 20 years, I only share with educated people, undergraduates, graduate students, postdocs, um, professors, or, you know, the Houston Medical Center has 120,000 employees. There's a ton of young physicians and young medical students, so them too. So these are the people that I share with. Every week, I see one of these educated people go from not believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a 10-minute conversation. It's a very strange thing. It's a hard thing to believe in a physical resurrection. The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead physically. He proved it physically because his disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. And he says, hey, not a ghost. Come on. Touch my hands. Feel me. Come on. You got flesh and bones. Then Jesus said to them, this is in, in, in the end of Luke's gospel. He says, you got something here to eat? And they gave him a piece of fish. And he ate it, he says. Why'd they give him fish? Because Jesus was always multiplying fish, you know. He says, and Jesus loved fish. And they probably thought, you know, if he likes it, it's Jesus. I mean, Jesus loves fish. He gave him a piece of fish and he ate it. And he said, a spirit doesn't eat. Spirit doesn't eat, as you see I'm eating. How many of you have ever seen a spirit eat? None of you. Yeah, spirits don't eat. Jesus was eating. And then he even invited his disciples in the end of John's Gospel. He said, come here, stick your finger into the hole in my hand. And stick your hand into the hole in my side. Because he got stabbed in the side. He rose physically from the dead. He walked for 40 days on earth. He appeared to his disciples on multiple occasions. He appeared to over 500 of them at one time. Hallucinations are not shared. A person may have a hallucination... But the other person is like, uh, what do you see? No, I don't see that. So hallucinations are not shared. 500 people saw him at one time. There is more written about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, more documented accounts written about that than anything else from that era. More written about that. Now I see educated people go from not believing to believing, and they haven't even studied any of this. It's not like, okay, let me do an investigation and after four years, I'll believe. No, I see them go from not believing to believing in ten minutes. How do you explain that? How do you explain that an educated person would go from not believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ to believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ in a ten-minute conversation? Do you have an answer to that? I'll tell you, I think, I think, watching this over and over and over again. I think it's because the truth of the resurrection is already on your heart. It's too incredible of an event to put that as a requirement for salvation. This is a requirement. You've got to believe in your heart. So it's not like, oh, well, you kind of believe. No, you really got to believe this. It's too big of a barrier. Unless God has already placed it on the heart. And you're just confessing to what's already there. That's the only way I can explain it. You say, well, you're always talking to Christians, come from Christian homes. No, almost never. I mean, the most people I see coming to the Lord are Chinese. And they come from China. And they come from communist families. And they don't know anything about Jesus. 
I was sitting at a, at a table just, just not too long ago with, a, with two physics professors. One was a Chinese woman, a young assistant professor, and the other was the chair of the department. And, and uh, um, she said to me, she said, I read on your website you're a Christian. I said, yeah, are you? She says, no, I come from China. My parents are in the Communist Party. We're not, we're not Christians. And then I looked at him. I said, are you Christian? He says, no, I'm, I'm from Sri Lanka. I'm a Buddhist. I said, okay, can I tell you my story? Twenty minutes into that dinner conversation, both of them were asking Jesus into their lives, believing in the resurrection. How do you explain that? Unless the truth of the resurrection were already there. Today is your day. If you are not saved, if you have never accepted Jesus, today is your day. Because the truth of the resurrection is already there. I'm just asking you to confess to what's already there. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He's raised from the dead, you will be saved. There's no other precondition. Nothing else. No other preconditions here. You don't have to believe in, in Adam and Eve and any of that. Let that come when it comes. This is what you got to believe. And this is the thing that's burned on your heart. That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's what's already there. We are going to pray. I urge you, if you do not know the Lord, don't leave this place without knowing Him. Ask the Lord into your heart this day. And then we're also going to pray to make a commitment that starting today, you will read the Bible and meditate on it every day. You will read a portion, say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me from this passage. Speak to me. And then allow God to speak to you. And if the next day, nothing particular comes to you, you continue to do it. You just continue to do it. Because those swimmers, if they have an off day and they're one second slower, they don't say, well, well, I'm one second slower, so this doesn't work. No, you, you persist. And you do this every day and fall into the scriptural blessing that guarantees you thriving. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your mercies and for your grace. Lord, I thank you for these young people. Each one of them is precious in your eyes, absolutely precious. And Lord Jesus, I pray that for those here who do not know you, they would pray along with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Come into my life. I believe that Jesus is Lord and I believe that he has risen from the dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me, I pray. Thank you, Lord. And Father, for those here who know you, I pray that they would pray this prayer today. Lord Jesus, may I commit my life to doing what you have told me to do, to make this word my daily meditation my daily meditation, that from this day I commit my life to reading the Bible every day, every day. And Lord, let me 
come into the blessing that that's going to have. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray that you move and you work upon these young people. In the name of Jesus. Amen.